Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for the, the message of that song we just heard. You are faithful. And such a clear message all throughout Scripture. Lord, I would imagine in this room right now are, I hope, a lot of folks who can look back over the course of this last week and, boy, they see your faithfulness and your goodness. And, Lord, right now as we bow our heads, they can say, God, I thank you for, for being there. I thank you for your guidance, for your wisdom. I thank you for the healing. I thank you for encouragement. God, I thank you for the faithfulness to forgive and to care for me. Lord, I pray right now all across this room we can just lift up words of thanks and praise for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Lord, I'm guessing there's some in the room right now they can look back over the course of this last week and maybe, maybe, Lord, the circumstances of their life lead them to question and wonder if you're there, to wonder if you're faithful. Oh God, I ask that, that this day, this week, that they'll see evidence of your goodness and faithfulness. Open their heart and mind to see that. Provide, Lord, that, that direction, that, that encouragement, that hope. Provide that forgiveness. Lord, we just pause here in your presence for a moment just to Enjoy the stillness and the silence of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, folks, I am I'm growing increasingly concerned, and I can't imagine that many of you aren't also growing concerned at what appears to be a, a really rapid increase of our loss of voice in our culture. I, I think the church's voice in America is in a very steep and severe decline. I, I don't know that the loss is total. I don't know that the loss is permanent. But we're not in a good spot, are we? And, and you know, that's going to happen for a couple of reasons. For one, we could talk about the other side. <laughs> those who don't want to hear our voice. Those who don't like our voice. And they've certainly grown stronger. And we can look at it from that perspective. And yet, that part of the equation is not a variable. That, that's always been the case. There's always been those who've, who've hated the voice of the church and have attacked the voice of the church. That's not a variable. That's a constant so if we're talking about losing our voice, that means at one time we had more of a voice. At one time we had more of an influence. Now if, if the enemy, we'll call it that, is a constant, then that means we have to, doesn't it, look within and see what role we've played in the loss of this voice. I'm not saying it's completely our fault. I am saying I believe we've played a role. And, and I think a, a, a part of what we've done kind of centers around Kind of a theme you're going to see this fall. And, and that's the theme of dealing with our culture with both grace and truth. And I think part of our problem is the church tends not to strike a very good balance. What we tend to do is fall off on one side or the other. I think you've got a lot of churches. I think you've got a lot of believers who have defined grace. Now grace is a good thing, isn't it? Yes, all right. Let's try that again. I think it's really a good thing. Grace is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Praise God for grace. Yeah. And what does that grace do and what does it mean to our life? Folks, grace is all we've got. It's God's grace. 
Having said that, I believe there's a significant portion of the church, a significant portion of believers who've defined grace and defined love to mean that Jesus doesn't really care about sin anymore. I'm not sure they would quite phrase it that way, but I think that's how they end up acting. You know, God's love, God's grace, we just accept and, and, and we just don't worry. Yeah, we accept. Is there, there a difference between accepting the sinner but not accepting the sin? But I don't, I don't know that we make that differentiation anymore. And so the church has lost its voice because I think you have a lot of a church that's not speaking. They're not saying anything is wrong anymore. We're just all about, you know, just accept everyone, accept everything. And so there is no voice. Now, another part of our problem is just the opposite Man, we've got members of the church, members, churches throughout our country that profoundly believe there's right and there's wrong and there's sin and that has to be confronted. And they do so in what it sounds like just nothing but hate and anger. There's no relationship. There's no no grace. And so all that comes out is is a message of of hate and condemnation and and it's dismissed. All they have to offer the world is a stone. Now, I suppose I've kind of said, okay, there's this side and this side. There's probably a big middle. As a matter of fact, I would guess our church, maybe a lot of us are there in the middle. Yeah, we we profoundly believe that there's right and there's wrong and and sin needs to be confronted and dealt with. But we don't want to sound hateful. We don't want to sound condemning. We don't want to sound mean in our culture and around our friends. And so kind of like the first group, we really just end up saying nothing. We end up doing nothing. And while all this is going on in the church, our our culture is just spiraling out of control into, into moral bankruptcy. I wonder if we would stop and maybe ask ourselves, or if we stop and are aware at the really unique spot that, that you and I stand in Christian history in America. Do, do we stop and realize that, you know, you and I have had an opportunity to basically follow Christ at no cost. And yet you would not pick up your New Testament and think that, boy, hey, you know what? One day we can look forward to a nation where the majority of people are Christians. One day you can look forward to a government that's actually going to be built and run on biblical principles. One day believers are are going to see a nation that is so Christianized that they'll literally be offended when unbelievers don't celebrate the birth of their Savior. Folks, for some of us, that's what makes us angrier than anything in our culture. Have you ever stopped and thought about the craziness of that? Why is it we expect unbelievers to celebrate the birth of our Savior? But we do, don't we? And we get mad if they don't. No, really what happens, I think, is when you open up the New Testament, kind of what you pick up is, hey, wow, you know what? If I really choose to follow this person of Christ, good chance I'm going to be rejected by maybe certain family members or friends. There'll be a significant opportunity there to be hated and persecuted by the world, by our culture. Some of us will actually be jailed and killed. You know, folks, that's not just an idea in the Scripture. That's what's going on in the world right now and has gone on every year somewhere in the world, multiple places in the world since Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection. 
But believers in America have largely gotten a pass. We've been able to say, I'm a follower of Christ with literally almost no cost at all. And if we are on the brink of losing that opportunity, do we not need to stop and ask ourselves, hey, what have I done with the opportunity to do that? Let me say it again. It seems like the only thing we can really get rallied about. And boy, we've got pins and buttons for it and t-shirts and we'll get organized. Because by golly, we are going to attack Home Depot if they don't call it a Christmas tree. (laughs) Now folks, you know, I know it sounds like I'm mocking that. And it's, well, it's because I am. I, I am mocking that. And and let me back up. I I understand why we get upset about that. Because we do have a Christianized culture. I did not say a Christian culture. I said a Christianized. That's what most of us have lived in. And, and, And Christmas seems to be that place where we're really in touch that we're losing it. We are losing our Christianized culture. And so, hey, that hurts, that grieves, and, and that just kind of becomes a place to fight back. But folks, can I say, I really don't believe God could care less what they call a tree on December 25th. I really think God could care less when we live in a culture in the United States that is living in unprecedented sexual immorality for our particular nation's history. And we're over here arguing about a tree. When, when we live in a culture where hate and anger are becoming so intense around the, the issue of racism. And we're arguing about a tree. When we live in a culture where our, our political structure. And, and guys, when we even mention the word politics. I mean, there are so many. I don't want the church involved in politics. And you know what? When I say that, I'm not talking at the moment about the separation of church and state and atheists. There's a lot of Christians who don't want the church involved in politics. I've had people come out and say, are y'all political? Because I don't want to be involved in a church that's political. You know what? I, I, I get that. I understand that. When I come here on Sunday morning, it's not what I want to talk about with. I'm kind of one of those. I'm just real close to saying I just want to walk away from the whole thing. But can we do that? Can, can we make that decision when our government is speaking to every moral issue in our society. As a matter of fact, let me step out on a limb here. The United States government is shaping and directing more people on how to think morally than the church is today. That's a huge statement I just made. I want to say it again, let that soak in. The United States government, a godless government, is shaping and directing how more people think on moral issues than the church is. Now let's say you disagree with the statement because of the word more. Okay, so how wrong am I? I mean, I mean, folks, the reality is the government is shaping how tens of millions of people think on moral issues. And we just stand in the corner and say nothing? And then money. Oh my gosh, where do we even start on money? Who cares what else we fix in America? There's still money issue. I mean, folks, I feel like the United States has become the Titanic. We are big and we are bold and we are beautiful and we are unprecedented in our creation as we steam full speed ahead in total denial of the financial icebergs in our path that are going to take this nation out. I know I sound a little bit like Johnny Raincloud this morning. I'm sorry. You know, I mentioned these issues of, of money, of race, 
racism, politics, uh, sex, because, and, and there's probably some others, there are some others, but, but these are four issues that I think are shaping and directing the American heart and mind that have a voice today louder and bigger than the church. And it's making our life really complicated. You know, the amazing thing is all of these issues, if you turn to God's word, it's amazing how simple, how good God's word is on all of those areas. And it works and it works for every person in every culture at every time period. But (laughs) therein lies our problem, right? What culture, what the world, what we have done with God's word. I want to look at a, at a couple of passages today. As a matter of fact, I want to look at three passages. Let's start in Genesis 3. Don't you love when we start in Genesis? It's the easiest book in the Bible to find. It's the first one. After that, it gets a little more tricky, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at three passages. And in these three passages, I'm going to show you four things. I want to show you the birth of the problem. I want to show you the problem come into adulthood I want to show you how we, you and me as individuals, and how the church responds to the problem. And then I want to show you an illustration of how we respond to the problem. So what we're looking at first in Genesis 3 is the birth of our problem. And that is what we do with the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says there, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, before we look at what the serpent and Eve do with what God actually said, let's remind ourselves of what God actually said. And we can see that in chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Now listen to these words very carefully, because both the serpent and Eve are going to mess it up. Now the serpent's going to do it on purpose. But listen to the words used here. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Okay, that's what God actually said. Now let's go back to chapter 3. Verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, no, well, I mean, she didn't say that, I said that. But she said, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you, what's your, what's your Bible say? Touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. Now, let me say there, is that wrong? Probably not. Tree seems like a big issue. (laughs) Seems like it's pretty dangerous that we shouldn't do that, shouldn't be around that. It's probably a good way to say, hey, God said not to eat it. I'm not even going to go near it. I'm not even going to touch it. So it's not wrong to necessarily say, hey, based on what God said, I'm not even going to go near it or touch it. But she's quoting what God said, and God didn't say anything about touching it. She added something to what he said. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, folks, chapter 3 here gives us what the problem is in the world. The problem's all centered around this book. And what we see in Genesis 3, first of all, is that we have an enemy that is inspiring confusion. An enemy that inspires things being complicated, being difficult, hard to see. 
And the same enemy in Genesis 3 is the same enemy we're introduced to, we're told about in Ephesians 6. Remember that passage where it says, hey, your enemy's not flesh and blood. Your, your enemy's not of the physical realm. He's of the spiritual realm. Our enemy is, yes, yes say it like you know it. Satan, there we go, yeah. Our enemy, Satan. You know what? When I say our enemy is not flesh and blood, but we know it's of the spiritual realm, Satan, I'm going to guess a lot of us in this room already knew that. We'd heard that passage. We'd read that passage. Now I want to step out here and say, and almost nobody in this room lives in light of that truth. Almost nobody. We almost always make our enemy somebody with flesh and blood, a person that we can see. And the church has certainly done that in our culture. You see, we look out there and we say, you know who our enemy is? Our enemy is the homosexual community. Our our enemy is Hollywood. Our, Our enemy is the government. All that, folks, has flesh and blood, by the way. And the scripture said, no, that that's not your enemy. Now, in those groups, yeah, there's some there's some folks doing some bad things. But watch this, folks. This is really critical. Are they the enemy? Or are they captives of the enemy? It's a massive difference. You don't bomb captives of the enemy. You rescue captives. But see, we've made them the enemy. We've put our focus in the wrong place. And so then we completely miss what the enemy is doing in our culture and in our lives. Now, Genesis 3 shows us his strategy. Satan's got a very simple strategy for what he does with this book in your life and in our culture. First thing he does is he gets us to question God's Word. Did God really say that? You know, it doesn't even really matter what the question is. Just just get a question out there. Just start toying with the idea. Hey, this thing's not really clear. This thing's really confusing. Hey, I don't really... Can we really know what God said? Or maybe the question is, doesn't Satan kind of throw out the idea... Hey, if God's so good, then why is he holding out on you? Hey, there's something really good in that tree. See, God's not so good. He's holding something back. The really good thing is what... So, what's he do? Hey, just, let's just question it. And then as we start to question it, then he moves us into denying it altogether. Hey, God didn't say that. Hey, this is, this is written by a bunch of old Jews wandering around in a desert 2,000 years ago. This isn't, this isn't for today. This doesn't work in all cultures. Hey, these, these people, they, were, they weren't advanced like we deny it. Now, why we're in the process of denying it, and maybe some of us sometimes we resist denying it because we kind of respect it, but then Satan moves right in with the kill, and he replaces God's word. And do you know what he replaces God's word with? My favorite thing in the whole world, me. Me. Hey, man, you're smart enough to figure this out. You don't need this old book telling you what to do and what not to do. You, can, you know what's good for you. You know what will make you happy. And so what Satan does is he replaces God's word with my wisdom and my desires. And that's a pretty good strategy because I, I really like my wisdom and my desires. The problem is, as I move out into my world led by my wisdom and desires, sooner or later, my wisdom and desires are going to collide with your wisdom and desires. And our wisdom and desires is going to collide with that group's wisdom and desires. And pretty soon we're living in a really complicated situation. Now that's the birth of the problem. I want to run ahead now and show you this problem come out on the whole planet. This problem come to its fruition. Look with me in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. That's in your New Testament Probably the fastest way to find it is go to the end of the Bible, the other easy book to find, Revelation, 
and just start backing up to the left. You'll go through some small books. You'll hit Hebrews. And then after Hebrews, you'll hit a really short book, Philemon, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. You get to Thessalonians, Colossians, you've gone too far. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 again. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Understand this, when the rejection of this word, when the rejection of God's voice starts to come to full fruition, guess what? It's going to get difficult. It's going to get complicated. Life is going to become very hard. Why? Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And folks, I, I think that's a perfect description of the United States. And, and when I say that, I'm not saying I can go to a person or I can go to a story that illustrates one of those words. I'm saying these words are the character quality of the United States. This is just not something we've done or did. It's what we are. We have laws that promote and protect some of these words. That promote and protect some of these ideas. Because we are a culture that is fully rejecting what God's Word says. Now that leaves you and me, believers in God's Word, saying, what do we do? What do we do? How do we attack? All right, look at verse 12. We don't have to leave this time right here in the same chapter. Look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that's us, right? All right, it's just you and me, Annette. <laughs> Two of us. <laughs> It'd be lonely. I got, I got to try that again. Now, that's us. We want to live a godly life, right? <laughs> Praise God. All right. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Stop acting shocked and surprised that somebody doesn't like your Sunday school ideas. Stop acting shocked and surprised that not everybody believes. You're going to be persecuted. Let's read on. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yep, that's us. That's where we are. What do we do, Lord? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, every bit of it, every single command, every word, all of it is breathed out by God. And it's profitable. It's good for us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's a fancy way of saying whether you, can find it, whether you find it convenient or not. Whether it works for you or not, this is what you're to do. Do this. How do we do this? You reprove, you rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, there's just two ideas out of that long passage I just read I want you to get. Verse 14. Now, remember, our culture, we're saying, hey, how do I respond to a world that is becoming increasingly antagonistic to God's Word, increasingly antagonistic to the church? What do I do? Okay, verse 14. Number one, continue in what you've learned. 
Chapter 4, verse 2, preach. That's what we do. Okay, continue in what you learn. Before we get focused on how they are not obeying God's word, on what they don't believe, the first thing we do is we make sure we know what we believe. The first thing we do is we make sure we're living in that we're obeying. That's what continue. Continue. Obey what you've learned. Obey what you've believed. Make sure it's in your own life. And then secondly, it says, now go out into the world and preach. Now, you know what? Let's be honest. We see that word preach. We, most of us, we're going to dismiss ourselves from this word, right? Oh, that, that's what the guy up front, well, that, I don't want to fall off here. That's what the guy up front does, right? That's what the, you know, you stand here in this spot preaching that goes on on Sunday morning. No, that's not this word. That's not this person. This word preach here, you know what it means? Herald. Go out into the world and herald. Go out into the world and proclaim. That is a command, not just for the preacher. It's a command on every believer in Jesus Christ. You and I, as we live our lives, as we continue in what we believe, we're to go into the world heralding, hey man, God's word works. Hey, man, God's word is good. Hey, God has an answer for this. God has a direction on this. It makes life simple and clean, not complicated and difficult. We herald that. Now, it tells us how. It says, hey, listen, you reprove and you rebuke. That's confronting sin. That's truth. But it says we do it with great patience. That's grace. Doesn't patience kind of mean you're putting up with somebody? You're, You're kind of enduring a moment. You're enduring a person. It kind of implies a relationship. I want to show you an illustration of what I think this might look like. Turn with me to John 8. This is our last place to go this morning. Keep going to your left in your New Testament, small books. Then you'll hit Corinthians, Romans, Acts, and then John. John 8. You get to Luke, you've gone too far. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 1 says there, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I find this to be an intriguing story. Because when you read it quickly, and if you don't read it carefully, it almost sounds like Jesus is doing something different than Scripture, doesn't it? Now let's remember, Jesus is the author, capital A, of the law that Moses wrote that they're referring to. So so is Jesus correcting that? Is he doing something new and different? What's going on there? Because folks, when the Pharisees bring the woman to Jesus, in that moment, see now quick, we hear the word Pharisees and we immediately see, you know, horns and a pitchfork. They're bad guys, right? Ooh, the Pharisees. Hey, in this moment right here, the Pharisees are dead on right. 
They have truth. They have scripture. They're saying, Jesus, this is what God's word says. How are you going to apply it? I mean, they're right on right there. Kind of. Because you see, folks, not only is it the issue of truth, but it's what are you doing with that truth? Are you doing with that truth what God wants done with that truth? You know, folks, God wants to ultimately see people redeemed, rescued from the sin that has them captivated. His ultimate goal is not to punish. He will punish. His ultimate goal is not to bring about consequences. He paid for the consequences. For some, there will be consequences. But his his ultimate goal is to redeem. That's the first reason that he gives truth. But see, Jesus sees right through these Pharisees and their motives and what they're doing with truth. Because their motives are not pure. You say, how do you know that their motives are not pure? Well, let's kind of think through this. Sunday morning, we've got children here. I don't want to be inappropriate, but let's kind of do some simple math here. Did you notice what the Pharisees said? It said, we caught her in the, what? Act. We walked in. We saw it. This isn't rumor. This isn't what somebody told us. We saw it going on. Here she is. What are you going to do? Now, let's do some quick math. How many people does it take to commit adultery? Two. Yeah. Two people. So where's the other one? Why is there just one there? You know what you're seeing in those Pharisees? You're seeing a great illustration of the church. We got sinners we like. We got sinners we don't like. We got sinners that we're comfortable with and fine with. And we got some that are, ooh, they, they make my community uncomfortable. I, I don't like that. I don't want that around here. So, wait, what, hey, what verse can I use to get them out of here? What verse can I use to punish them? Now, the whore, we want her out of the community. Who she was with. Now, that's, that's a friend of mine. She, get, get out of here. We'll take care of this. See, their motives aren't right there. And folks, we do that. We pick people. We stone others. Some sins we want to stone in our community. Some sins, ah, we don't need to talk about that much. Jesus sees right through what they're doing. The impurity of the way they're using God's truth. And so he says, he did not tell them not to stone her. Did you notice that? He said, stone her. That's right. That's what God's word says. So you do that. But here's a little caveat. A lot of stones on the ground. A lot of you here lined up ready to do that. One thing. The first rock has to come from the hand of somebody who's standing there right with God. The first rock has to come from somebody who has the same heart and mind for God's truth. Do you have the same heart and mind? Boy, in that moment, rocks start dropping, start hitting the ground. The older, I love the way it says the older leave. I mean, older people are smarter, right? A youth, they got the venom, they got the vigor, let's go get it. But they're stupid, okay? No, I didn't didn't say that. I didn't say that. So the older starts dropping, they start leaving, and pretty soon there's just Jesus and the woman standing there. And Jesus says, hey, where's the people who condemn you? Nobody condemns me here, Lord. And Jesus says, well, neither do I. And it is the beauty, beautiful message of the gospel, isn't it? Folks, there's no sin in your life where Jesus won't say to you, and I don't condemn you either. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done, Jesus will forgive you. And that is the beauty of the grace of God, the beauty of the love of God. We read this story and we say, man, yeah, there it is. Yay, Jesus, right? Yay, Jesus. Praise God for grace. Praise God for love. But that's where I think a lot of people stop the story. 
But, but Jesus' last words were not, I don't condemn you. What were his last words? Hey, don't ever do that again. I love you. I forgive you. I will not condemn you. But don't ever go there again. Because it's destructive. It's destructive to you. It's destructive to families. It's destructive to society. Don't ever go there again. Truth and grace. Folks, I think Jesus is showing us in that moment what it looks like to, to model a ministry that has both grace and truth. And I want to tell you something. I don't think we'll land on it perfectly. I, I don't think on this side of heaven we'll ever land on it perfectly. But we do have to be aware there's a target, don't we? We do have to be aware, hey man, as I approach this, there's got to be both grace and truth. I've got to be able to enter the world and say, hey, guess what? They're still right and they're still wrong. There's still some things that are sin and destructive and we say no. But we don't do it with a stone in our hand. Maybe with a cup of coffee. Not to throw in their face. (laughs) You know, like sitting down, relating. Let me say it again. In 2 Timothy 3, when it says with great patience. You know what? I've never shown patience with somebody I've never been around or don't know. (laughs) Patience implies we're actually in a relationship and I'm enduring. You know, the problem with grace is it just gets messy sometimes. It's not as quick always as we would want. It's not as clean always as we would want. You know, sometimes, oh, I think I showed too much grace that time. Oh, I probably showed a little more truth that time. The patience means we endure, though. We're relating. You know what? You have to love somebody through and out of their sin. You know, I wonder uh, how many people were sitting in a church 10, 15, 20 years ago. And and they were struggling with a same-sex attraction. And they're they're sitting in a a church building. And I mean... I mean, I think in the idea that this is, this is a group of people you come to when you need help. This is a group of people when you got issues you're struggling with and, and you need guidance on how to sort through that and work that out. But, but somehow on that one sin, they were, they were pretty sure that, boy, if I tell somebody in this room that that's what I'm struggling with, I'm going to get stoned. I'm going to get hated. I'm going to get run out of here. And they probably were pretty accurate for thinking that way. And so one by one they left. I'm not saying everybody's struggling with that. Everybody in the homosexual community at one time was sitting in a church. I know this, you'd be shocked how many tens of thousands of them were. And as they began leaving the church and they formed that community, you know what they had one common? They had this one thing in common. They all were recipients of the message of the church. God hates you. And so do we. And I would imagine a lot of us in here say, wait, wait, I, I never said anything like that at all. I don't, I don't even remember our church saying something. Maybe not. But folks, there's real good reason why they think that's the only message we have for them. God hates you and so do we. And now we wonder why we're in the crosshairs of them. Because guess what? The tables have turned. And they now hold the upper hand. And they've heard from one clear group in the United States how hated they are. 
And because we could not, would not, did not apply grace and truth, we lost the opportunity to minister to an individual. And now I fear the opportunity to even speak to this in the culture. Because we sound like a group where all we offer is hate and condemnation. Now, folks, let me say it again. I said this back at the beginning. I'm not saying this is all our fault. People love sin. People love the darkness, and they fight those who bring truth. They fight those who bring the light. But that's not a variable. That's a constant. That's always the case. The variable is what we do with grace and truth. Now, that kind of ends my message today. What, what you've heard today is the, the background, it's the context for the messages I'm going to start speaking throughout this fall. I, I almost wish I could kind of do this sermon and then begin each issue, but that means each Sunday I'd be speaking like an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, and I think by the time I got to the third or fourth one, there'd be like six of us in here. <laughs> but see, here's, here's, I guess, a little bit of my frustration Over the course of this fall, there'll be dozens, if not well over a hundred, that will meander in here for a particular Sunday, and they didn't hear today's message. They don't realize there's a context by which I'm now going to take on marriage and divorce and living together and pornography and homosexuality and money and racism and politics. There's a context for taking that all on, and that's what we looked at today. God's Word provides us the simple and the good way. There's a reason it's gotten complicated. And and what I hope we're doing this fall is maybe the church, at least our church, trying to kind of clear our voice and speak fresh and new to the issues that... Gosh, these issues, they're on TV, on the news every night, aren't they? These these are issues that our government's making laws on. These are issues that are shaping and molding our kids. Be a church that's actually speaking to the issues all around us. But not just speaking. Gosh, how small and irrelevant a single sermon is. Not only to speak to it, but folks actually provide some real and significant help. You know, on a couple of these, right now I've got planned already two. The, the, the Sunday we deal with homosexuality. The Sunday we deal with money. I'm going to be bringing in that day, for lack of a better word, an expert. It's going to be a part of what I do on Sunday morning. But then we're going to come back Sunday afternoon with a a little bit tighter audience, if you will. And we're going to start trying to provide some real help, like on money. What if we said, hey, listen, what does a person do to actually make their money work right now today? How do we budget? Would you be shocked to find out there's some real biblical help on how to make your money work today? We're going to offer another class on investing and retiring because there's some real biblical guidance on how to prepare for the future. On homosexuality, what if we, what if we uh, found out, hey, what if we had a class for those that love somebody, care about somebody that's struggling with same-sex attraction? You know, a lot of you in here right now feel like you're completely alone in dealing with that issue. You'd be shocked how many in our room right this moment, because I know you, love somebody, if there's any very close to you that's struggling with that. What if we kind of got together and said, hey, how do we love and help? What if we had a class for somebody actually struggling with that? I want to be a church that's addressing and helping, speaking truth, offering grace and patience to work through something. And folks, we got a lot of things going on in our church right now. Divorce care, grief share. We got a small group, uh, a support group for ladies that have been through an abortion. 
Well, I tell you, tremendous ministry we have in our church. You see it there under, under, my, uh, under the sermon uh, in your bulletin, Celebrate Recovery. This is a new ministry we started uh, back in the, uh, in the winter. Uh, it's been going on for over half a year. It takes place on Monday nights at 6 o'clock. It's a new ministry to us. It's not a new ministry to the nation. It's been around for decades. A profound ministry for helping people that have been held captive. Held captive to certain addictions. Held captive to certain pains. And man, we're, we're seeing some real healing and some help take place in that. There's a, a big worship time. And then later there's support groups for the various issues We've got a, a Bible study. We're starting Wednesday night. As you came in the center door, right to the, this side of it, there's a desk there, a, a, a class called Life's Healing Choices. Folks, this is something for every one of us. Either one, because we need it, or two, because we need to be able to share with others about this class or about Celebrate Recovery. As a matter of fact, let me show you something about the class right now. Turn your attention to the screen. My family growing up looked like a model family, but on the inside we were a wreck. When I was 20, uh, I became a Christ follower, and I, I had some amazing times in my experience with God, but all the while I was still a very bitter, resentful, and angry man. When my wife and I started a family, things just became worse. I found myself acting like my dad did when I was a child. I was controlling and angry. There was a night where um, my wife and I had got into a fight. I really pushed her to the edge and I watched her uh, grab some stuff and leave the house, get in our car and drive away. So the next day I met with David O'Brien and as we talked and he listened to what was going on with me, he. He recommended a book to me called Life's Healing Choices. And with that, God began the change in my life. He set me free from past hurts and resentments. He restored my marriage, and one by one, I've seen each of my kids move into a relationship with Him. Today, I can say that Christ really did change my life through the biblical steps of Life's Healing Choices.